0: Forever,
1: dog. Just between
2: us. Hey. Just between us. Hey. Hello, I'm alison Raskin. I'm a writer, mental health advocate, and. Gossip. I love to gossip. Gabby was just giving me some good gossip and now we have to stop so we can do the show.
0: <laughs> Hi, I'm Gabby Don. I'm a writer, bicon, bisexual icon, wink. And yeah, there was a lot of hot goss coming your way. I love the tea and I was getting it. And then Melissa was like, We're running out of time. Do your job. Well, because <laughs> I'm like dating a bunch of people, but Allison didn't know about some of them. And so then there was one that was like real, uh, I thought Allison would care to know about. And I was like, now I can share it because I think it's over. Why couldn't I know when it was happening? I guess you could have. It's a really sad time for me if everyone could just put your hands together and pray.
2: (laughs) It's funny to think that I used to to react to things. (laughs) Like when we first met, you would tell me stuff and I would be like, oh my God. And now I'm like, yeah. Mhm. Like I like nothing. I, I can I think at this point it would have to be like murder for me to be like, "Whoa."
0: <laughs> yeah. I just wanted to say that this once again proves that just because someone has abs does not make them a good person. And I think we all need to keep that in mind. But also, I guess there's a slot available on the roster. So if you're um hot and, you know, available, hit me up uh, there's an opening on uh, the what we call the <laughs> what's that what is it called the the starting lineup there's an opening
2: on the starting lineup i i and and this might be my radicalness that's happening i hate that you say if you're hot i know i know but this it is what really i mean it really rubs me the wrong way okay but
0: this is what i mean i don't mean hot like cuz there are people that are like conventionally attractive that are so vile to me i'm talking about if you are Hot in a way that I, Gabby Dunn, specifically find but people hot. don't
2: know that. So then they, all people are hearing is you perpetuating this idea that like only attractive people are desired. Attraction is incredibly subjective. So then say, if you are hot to me on my personal preference, which is different for everybody. Exactly. That's how you should always say it. <laughs> <laughs> and, oh,
0: do you want better? I don't care what you look like. If you are confident. There we go. If you have... I don't always reply to the DMs that y'all send me that are simping, but I appreciate them. I enjoy that you've shot your shots. I
2: find it hard to believe you don't reply.
0: To I really haven't. I felt <laughs> bad. I really, I haven't. And so, yes, mostly what I what I mean when I say hot is, is confidence. All I really am attracted to in the through line of people that I've been attracted to, none of them look alike or have similar body types or anything. They just are confident.
2: Yeah. But, it, you know, confidence is also... It's also tricky. It's hard. It's hard to have confidence. Now that I have all of these newfound beliefs about the world, I have so much left to to say. I can't really speak about any you know what I mean? I realize like I listen to all these podcasts where people are just like bashing people and like giving their opinions about stuff and now I'm just like everyone has a different context. Like I well, because I you're like a share. you're like a
0: very Zen like mental health <laughs> professional and I'm a himbo slot. So we've really reached welcome to the show. Uh, I'm just kidding. There there's no roster. That would imply that there's a limit. Um, can I talk about can I talk about something? Okay, wait. Wait, wait, wait. Melissa just
2: got that. <laughs>
0: okay, wait. So, this is just between us, a variety show filled with heartfelt advice, ridiculous games, and brutal honesty. Can I say one thing about a DM I got that I didn't like? Sure, absolutely. Okay. So, I got a DM from someone, and I'm sure this person meant well. Mm-hmm. They said some flattering things in the in the DM. What what kind of things? <sighs> just like about loving the show and about like all this stuff. And I'm not meaning to call this person out in particular, but I had mentioned feeling a bit disheartened that whenever I post about something trans, I lose followers. So I started when I first came out as trans, I started with 300,000 on Instagram. I'll give you the numbers. And then over the time that i've any and i can see it happening because i have the statistics every time i post about being trans i lose followers lose followers i'm now at like 297 and and that dropped right after i posted another thing about being trans i don't ha- i can't prove that it's connected but it seems connected my instagram's so, going down every day and i don't even have an excuse <laughs> <laughs> okay but mine i can see is tied to, to to some of that stuff so i had spoken on the show saying I'm worried about alienating the people that used to be fans of mine, right? Let's say you ha- you were a big fan of me. I helped you realize that you were a-, a bisexual cis woman. You come and find me now and you're like, what is this transmasculine goblin that I see before me? And I, uh, this person was trying to make me feel better, I think, but ended up saying, you know, of course, like a lot of times like queer cis women or lesbian cis women uh, feel a little bit of a loss Whenever someone they look up to comes out as trans because the community is so small and uh, of queer women and lesbians is so small that, you know, it just it's not about that person. It's just about feeling like uh, the loss of the representation. That is a a turf talking point. I don't know if you if the anybody who has sent that to me and multiple people have said that sentiment to me, if you realize that. But. The idea that the lesbian community is shrinking because of trans masks is not true. And in fact, there are more trans lesbians than ever. And how come you don't count those in your ranks of gaining more queer women? No, because you just are thinking about women as cis women, which we can't even get into that. But there is this very toxic idea that because of trans masculinity, there are no butches anymore and all the lesbians are turning into men and whatever. And and my friend Stephanie Frosch put it this way. She said, that's like being disappointed that your Pokemon evolved. Maybe, and someone else, one of my friends was like, this should have been in the group text and not sent to you directly. But like saying that someone transitioning is a loss for you or a loss for your community is fucked up. I sent it to some friends and I was like, it's fine. It's not like this is my literal biggest fear regarding my career and my fan base. And then there's been like a few DMs from people being like, yeah, I know you've said that's your biggest fear. And like, it is true. But,
1: mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> and people keep saying like, just, just wait. You're going to, it's going to be re- like, it's going to be refilled. Like the trans fans will support you. And like, they're, it's just, you're going to lose these people, but you'll gain other people. So I don't know. But I just, this like idea of entitlement to, to you being like a representative of this specific group. And then when you're not that, that they are grieving you in some way is just keeps me up at night. (laughs) I'm sorry. I mean, it's like, I don't know, but it's, it's anything that has to do with like being one way and then changing that way. And then people are like, no, but we liked you. I don't know. I don't know. I'm sure like, this is a very common thing for like, You know, I'm sure Elliot Page feels this way too. Like, I'm sure like there's people that were like, no, you are our lesbian representation or whatever. But you know what? Get, there's new ones out there. Like, I don't know. It's just like, uh, I just felt weird and it was my biggest fear. And then this person sent this, this to me and they're not the first person to have done it. So don't think that this is just about you, but there have definitely been other people who have sent me similar feelings. Please don't, (laughs) but do hit on me. (laughs) And that's it. That's DM corner. That's just the part of the show where we talk about what's going on in the DMS.
2: It's so funny, right? When somebody shares something like that and like wanting to give back something to you of like, Oh, well, what about this? Or what about, you know, but like, I don't want to do that. I just want to like honor that feeling and be like, that sucks. And I'm sorry.
0: It's weird for someone to say that they are grieving you when you are right there. Yeah. I didn't go anywhere. Right. I'm right here, guys. Still making stuff. Whether you want me to or not. And a lot of you don't. And I'm here to tell you people. Okay, <laughs> this is just between us. A variety show filled with heartfelt advice. Ridiculous
2: games. And brutal honesty.
0: I'm so excited because this week we're going to be talking to Susan Kane all about grief and longing and her book, Bittersweet.
2: And later we will be discussing how do you learn to like yourself? But first, we have got to answer a listener's question. And you know what that means? Hit it! International question! International question! International question! Anonymous Dublin. Top of the morning to you. How did this song exist? Why do I sing this?
0: Why do you sing International Question? Yeah, when
2: did this start?
0: (laughs) Well, I remember back in the day when we first started on YouTube, you would get very excited when we would get a question from an international place because you felt that our reach was such that we were oh. global. And so
2: I just sang it one day?
0: Yeah. And you were very excited. And now, even if the question is domestic, <laughs> you do still <laughs> sing international questions. Uh, but the last two episodes did have actual international. So thank you, Dublin. <laughs>
2: Okay, so Anonymous writes, Hi, Gabby and Allison. I discovered your podcast during the pandemic, and you've been a great sense of comfort to me. And I've learned so much by listening to you over the past few years. My question is, how do I stop getting so sad every time I have to say goodbye to my long distance boyfriend? At the moment, I'm able to visit home for a few days, about once a month. But on our last night together, every time I get incredibly sad and worried that I won't see him again and cry hysterically. He's so sweet about it and does his best to comfort me and tries to cheer me up and make me laugh, but I feel awful that I put him through that every time I see him. He makes me feel very secure in our long-distance relationship, and I'm generally very happy just talking to him every day and looking forward to the next time we can see each other. I'm also always okay with the feeling of being long-distance the next day once I'm at home, and it's really just the anticipation of having to say goodbye that kills me. When we first started dating, we lived much closer to each other for a few months, and I didn't have this reaction then. So I think I'll be fine when we live closer to each other again, but that's still about a year away. Is there anything I can do to keep enjoying our relationship when we get to see each other without getting hung up on the fact that it's temporary? Thanks so much.
0: Woo! Let's talk attachment styles. Okay. Oh, do you have a uh, doctor done? (laughs) Dr. Dunn was my grandfather. <laughs> he was actually a very well-respected anesthesiologist in his community. Okay, so this is an insecure attachment style. And this is not your fault. This is something that you maybe you have past situations where you were told that you would see someone again and you didn't see them again. Maybe you had situations where people, other people in your life were not as permanent as you wanted them to be. I think there's also like a huge come down, like, right. So when you're long distance, you see someone and you get so high on seeing them and you're so excited and it's almost like doing Molly. And then the next day is like your blue Monday where like you're coming down off of this, this great big manic high of being with the person that you love. So I think like in this scenario, your emotions are all over the place and you're getting like a lot of dopamine and then your dopamine is crashing. And so it's sort of like, how do you get to a place of secure attachment? It's not something your boyfriend can give you. He's the one who's like comforting you and obviously being really lovely. It's something that you have to learn and give yourself. It's like a self-soothing sort of technique that um, you're going to have to like learn and give yourself because attachment styles can change. Like you don't, you're not stuck with this one.
2: I will also say, and I'm not jumping to that. This is an attachment issue necessarily, but I will say if one way that you do learn to have a secure attachment is actually in relationship with another person. So it isn't something you actually do all of your all on your own. A lot but of times, he can't it will give be. that to you, right? But a lot of times, just through the process of having a, a healthy relationship with someone who does mm-hmm. show up for you in a stable, consistent way, that can help you change your attachment. But style. then,
0: if he's doing that, how can she start to believe him? Right, I'm just. I was just making a point that no, like, no, 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 I it, hear you. That like,
2: yes, there's a lot of work you have to do on your own, but also a lot of times the the attachment can change in through a relationship. So like, even like, you can change your attachment style even through having a, a good relationship with your therapist, mm. right? Because like, through the relationship of having a secure attachment to your therapist, you can learn how to have a secure attachment style.
0: So, but
2: what can she do? Yeah, I I think that my first. My first step is to remove the judgment of the feelings, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. So, like, feeling really shitty about yourself that you do this every time. That's just making you feel worse. And, like, we, you know, objectively, it is a sad thing to leave your boyfriend, Mm -hmm. right? Like, I think that, like, maybe we're forgetting that, like, yes, this reaction seems big and is probably a lot in the moment. But also... It makes sense that you're sad to leave your boyfriend. Of
0: course. Right. And
2: so just like allowing yourself that validating that. I think that the thing that is really harmful is this idea that I'll never see him again versus I'm just sad that we're going to be apart for a while. Right. And so like you said, you know, that can maybe be, you know, tapping into some abandonment issues or wounds there that like it could be something that you could if you have access to therapy, potentially work out in therapy
0: or even try to remember like where when has this ever happened in your life Mm -hmm. if it has what what did that mean to you what how did that affect you is that something that you've just brushed over to me it's a lot of remembering that this person isn't this person that your boyfriend isn't that same person and that he's not abandoning you that that's not what's happening in
2: reality because believe me If your brain wants to lie to you, I also think and this might sound strange, but like, you know, obviously working through your attachment style, working through past trauma, that's all long term work. That's important. Definitely should be a priority. But I also wonder what it would look like to in a short term solution, add some humor into what's happening yeah you know like for me I do a lot of weird stuff <laughs> like <laughs> I I got some problems you know like I have I have you know a OCD and my OCD makes me do things that are are weird mm-hmm. and so the way that I handle it and like you know it's different but like the way that I handle it is I poke fun at myself mm-hmm. and I laugh about it and I'm able to say I'm able to recognize the moment like I'll like announce to like a few weeks ago i was feeling like really burnt out and i was feeling like oh no like things aren't really going that well in my brain <laughs> and so i but i was able to like say to john i was like i'm a, i'm on the cusp of a breakdown do <laughs> so, you know like i was like yeah like this is not going to go well for you like i don't know man like this is i'm just letting you know when i have my breakdown you can say hey she told me it's coming <laughs> you
0: know like yeah or play out like the funny like i feel like you could be like Okay you're going off to you know sail on a ship in 1900 and we shall never see each other like you know what i mean like yeah, try like, to like make it as s- silly like and
2: and that's not going to take away the sadness but it it does change the atmosphere and so I think like even just being able to be like "Well, here I go I'm crying again you know like being able to find the humor in the situation because I think you can see that there is some humor there like there is some like absurdity like whenever we like lose control of ourselves there is an element of like well this is wild right and so being like tapped into that instead of feeling like it has to be a night where you take things so seriously Mm -hmm. and that only sadness can prevail and then tomorrow oh let me like apologize for it to you know right, like right, right just like being able to like have it almost be like a joke in your relationship that yeah. like every time you say goodbye you have a, you fully cry you know like or yeah. you have a meltdown like that can be like an ongoing bit like so much of my mental health has just now become a bit <laughs> that yeah. like I think not only makes it easier for John to handle, but just makes it easier for me to handle because like, I can see, I can see the absurdity in it. It doesn't necessarily mean that I'm like not going to, you know, Clorox wipe the back of my couch because suitcase is touched it two sure. days earlier. Like yeah, I'm going to get to that, but like <laughs> being able to be like, ah, oh, yeah, you got it. You know, like yeah. I, for me, humor has always helped me in, in, processing these big emotions and these things were, it has helped me the most in times where I have felt out of control of myself. Yeah. Maybe finding the funny in it might help. I
0: think that that's, I think that that's correct. Yeah. I don't think it has to be so heavy, especially cause you know, most likely you will see each other again. You know, you can cry
2: while laughing. Yes. I know that seems like a wild thing to say, but you can do both those things.
0: Yeah mal and i first started dating we got into like a conversation because you know you're getting to know each other and i was like oh yeah i like to get to the airport like right as we're boarding like i like to just get there like i want to just walk onto the plane and mal was like no you need to get there like three hours early and i was like why to sit there for two hours and mal was like what and it was so horrifying to them that i remember in the moment they were so <laughs> upset but in this weird way that they just went no, baby, please compromise, please. And it was such a funny, weird little way to put that. And so then I had it embroidered on a pillow. (laughs) (laughs) And like, that's funny. And now we have that like pillow that just says, no, baby, please compromise, please. (laughs) And we have that for any time, you know, like, and so I think there is like, it diffuses things. It diffuses yeah. things. And even
2: just like making jokes like can't wait to see you, can't wait to break down. Yes, I, exactly. You know, like, just taking the power away from the moment, I think making might making a special tissue box. For yeah. The for night when before. you have your just device just labeled the night before. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> well, that's our advice. Laugh about it. Uh <laughs> Hopefully that helps. If you want to submit an international question, you can send it to justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. That's justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. Up next, we've got an exciting interview
0: with our highly esteemed guest, Susan Kane. Stay tuned.
2: Packages between us. It's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, controversial segment known to all of podcasting. Tough
0: questions. This week on the show, we have Susan Kane, the author of Quiet The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking, which spent seven years on the New York Times bestseller list and has been translated into 40 languages. Her new book is Bittersweet. How sorrow and longing makes us whole, and it became an instant number one New York Times bestseller. Hello.
3: Hello. It is so fun to be here with you.
2: So, these topics are so interesting and also so different. So, how did you kind of pick uh, the topic for bittersweet? What made you want to talk about like grief and longing?
3: Yeah. You know, what made me really want to talk about it is that I had had this experience my whole life of. Listening to, you know, sad, I'm saying that with scare quotes, sad music, um, and experience something that was really quite different from sadness itself, but rather experiencing a kind of whoosh of love and um, sense of community because the music expresses the pain that all human beings go through at one time or another. Yeah, in a sense of a a kind of transcendence, you know, of like transcending uh, one's own experience and being connected to something bigger. And at first I was just curious about the music itself, but I quickly realized that it wasn't really only about music and and rather the music is tapping into this bigger thing um, that I call bittersweetness, which is the awareness, the deep awareness that joy and sorrow in this world always go together. And that when you're tapped into that reality, there's a kind of a a sense of being tapped into the beauty of the world and and the joy of the world and um, like to create creativity and connection and transcendence. And it's like this just sort of deep power source, I would say, that our culture does not tell us about because our culture is telling us, you know, be you know, super cheerful and optimistic all the time and 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 cheer and optimism are amazing. Not, you know, no nothing wrong with those, but just that there's this other deep vein of human experience that is so incredibly powerful that I wanted to shine a light on.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh... I think that there is a real fear of negative emotions um, because they feel bad and they feel like Ian. <laughs> but there's also a sense that if you don't feel negative emotions, then it's a lot harder and sometimes impossible to feel positive emotions fully too. Is that something you found along your journey of writing oh, yeah. this book?
3: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And And I don't like feeling negative emotions any more than any other human does. It's just that what happens if you don't, make space for them is you end up taking them out somehow on yourself, you know, in the form of like addiction or depression or whatever it is for you, Um, you know, or you might take them out on somebody else in the form of abuse or resentment or passive aggressiveness. And then there's this other way of being where, where you do make space for them. And what ends up happening is they hurt, but there's also a way in which we kind of like transform them into something else and there's this deep tradition that goes all the way back to ancient mythology you know there's the uh, an archetype of the the so-called wounded healer which is basically like these figures all through history who were wounded in a particular way and then it's like the source of their healing came the, the source of their healing powers came directly from that wound and in the book i i i take readers through many many examples of people like this but you know it's everything from you know the the Parent whose child is killed on a highway by a drunken driver and then she starts mothers against drunk driving, or like after 9-11, suddenly in the US, lots of people signing up to become firefighters. And with the pandemic, lots of people signing up for medical school and nursing school. And like, why do we do that? All these examples, in a way, are like rushing, rushing closer to the scene of the wound. But I think what they're really doing is tapping into this human desire to make meaning out of pain. And it's one of our best qualities that we need to tap into.
2: Yeah, I feel I feel a little conflicted about this because something I think and talk about a lot is like you don't need to make meaning from your pain. Do you know like uh, that sometimes I think there's this feeling of like, oh, your trauma makes you stronger. And then this is like and like always looking for this silver lining yeah. and things that I think can be really detrimental and also it puts pressure on people to respond to to bad things in a certain way and also sort of implies that like you can't be a full person without experiencing trauma and I think that you can I think that like a lot of us unfortunately don't get to have that opportunity because we Mm -hmm. have traumatic experiences but this this idea that like we must find meaning in the bad doesn't always sit sit great with me
3: no, I, I I totally understand that, and I actually really appreciate that you're like coming out and saying that because I think that's a really important thing to talk about. and and I do want to be careful. like I, those examples that I just gave are kind of like, I don't know, they're sort of uh, you know, big and archetypal examples, but the point is not like everybody's got to go out and like found an organization or you know <laughs> right? go, go, go paint a beautiful painting or something like that it's it's not that so much it's more that those are like big examples of smaller little um, moments that we all pass through when pain comes um and God knows like i I think it's great if a person gets through a life without trauma as you were saying I don't think so that we can get through a life without Pain or without experiencing sorrow. And even if we are like miraculously managed to do it ourselves, we're living in a world in which all around us, there's all kinds of tragedies and evils that we all have to contend with. So th- this bittersweet tradition that I've been like researching for this last five, six, seven years talks about is like the way in which that we're we're taught that when everything is going well, that that's life. That's like the default version of life. And when things aren't going well, that's like the path off the road and now you're like in the wilderness as opposed to expecting all of these things to come because they're all part of life and it makes it easier when they come. If you see life that way, it all just makes much more sense and you're spending a lot less time. You're still having the pain the pain itself, but you're spending less time like resisting it um, and saying, oh, it wasn't supposed to be this way as opposed to saying, oh, this is kind of what life entails and entails all all of this. I think for all of us, if we could wave a magic wand and say, you know, it's only going to be joy and it's only going to be beauty, we'd probably wave that wand. I, <laughs> I would. But I'm more trying to respond to the world in which we live and mm-hmm. how to make sense of that.
2: Yeah. Like what do you want your readers to take away from the book? Like, is it a sort of a change in perspective?
3: Um, I guess I'd say, yeah, it's a bunch of things. I mean, for one thing, I would say there is a way of being in the world um, that I call bittersweetness. And it's a way of being that is acutely aware of the way in which joy and sorrow are forever paired in this world. And what what we found through the research, there's we have in the book a, a bittersweet quiz. I say we because I developed it with these psychologists, um, David Yadin at Johns Hopkins and, and Scott Barry Kaufman. And what we found is that people who are very attuned to the way in which joy and sorrow go together also tend to be attuned to states of awe and wonder and spirituality and creativity. It's like all these things, it's a constellation of things that come together. Like you were saying at the beginning, you know, my first book, Quiet, and this one seems so different. And at first I thought that too. But what I realized is that this bittersweet way of being in the world is a kind of hidden superpower that our culture doesn't teach us about. Just the way that being quiet in a world that prizes extroversion and and dominance is also a kind of hidden superpower. So that's that's one of the things I want people to take away is is that I think there's a fear that if you're if you're too much attuned to the sorrows at hand, that you might like disappear into a kind of quicksand of grief and never come out again. And I'm saying that there's a middle way. There's, there's a middle way in which you can experience joy and sorrow together. And that this middle way is a kind of superpower um, that, that gives you access to certain states of creativity and connection.
0: When you were talking about uh, songs and yeah. you know, it is interesting, right, that so many songs are about longing, that like every song is about love and longing and loss. And there's this uh, word for, I think, a state of being where I can't remember what the word is, where you suddenly realize that everyone in the world saunder. Where you suddenly realize that everyone in the world is has the same complex capacity that you do and is and their life is as complex as yours. And they are feeling similar things to what you feel. And sometimes people experience that as very like, wow, human connection. And sometimes people experience that as this is overwhelming. (laughs) Was that was going on for you?
3: Yeah, it was very much like that, though. I, I, I guess I would say I've experienced that exact thing that you're describing in an overwhelmingly positive way, you know, something about the, the way in which humans are united in this state of being. And
0: is that something more people need to like understand to make the world a more connected place? Yeah, absolutely.
3: I, I do think that. And I mean, there, there's all these interesting studies about sad music, you know, like People whose favorite songs are um, are happy listen to them about 175 times on average on their playlists, and the people who love sad music will listen to those songs 800 times, and <laughs> and, um, and and then they'll tell researchers that they feel when they listen to them, like that they feel connected to the sublime and you know to these these higher states of being, and and I kind of traced that. And what it really is, I believe, is that all humans enter this world with this fundamental state of feeling like a kind of longing for a more perfect world that they feel they belong to, that's out there somewhere, you know, from which they've been temporarily banished. And you see this expressed in all our religions, right? It's like there's the longing for the Garden of Eden and the longing for. Mecca and the longing for Zion, you know, Dorothy and The Wizard of Oz is longing for somewhere over the rainbow. All the children's literature, the the protagonists are always orphans who are in this state of longing. And it's an a, and there's a a kind of understanding in all these different narratives that it's the longing itself that then propels us on our adventures, you know, or the adventures of these children's books, heroes, or whatever it is. So, so yes, I think that if we were more aware of this and could tap into it, it's, it, it, it's a kind of, uh, it's a kind of deep force for all of us or, or a deep, a a deep power source, I should say.
0: Not even moving like forward in our adventures, but just feeling not alone, just feeling like I'm going through this and somebody made a whole album about this.
3: Yeah, yeah. And
0: so I'm not alone. I'm not by myself. I'm not, you know, every time you go through a breakup, you kind of go, I'm the only person to have ever experienced this terrible thing. Um, and it's been really helpful as I've gotten older to be like, I'm not, (laughs) (laughs) this
3: is actually a thing that has happened to many people. (laughs) Totally. Absolutely. Um, there's something really profound about that. And, and like, I, I would say then also the fact that when you're listening to the song, it's like, you know, the artist or the musician is telling you they've felt that way, and everybody and you know that everybody else who's listened to it has felt that way, or they wouldn't be resonating so much with it. And then the musician has taken this extra step of turning it into something beautiful. So it's like all of that, I think, um, uh, translates into this deeply collective experience that you can experience all by yourself.
2: I'd also like love to talk about the grief component of the book, because mm-hmm. I think there's this sense that grief is something you get over. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that that's true. And, you know, having talked to people who've lost significant people in their life, it's really yeah. just your relationship to the grief maybe changes, but it's always with you. Yeah. So I'm wondering if you had some takeaways around around grief from your research.
3: Yeah, definitely. I mean, one one of the things that I investigated a lot in the book is um, the the Buddhist concept of impermanence and non-attachment and, you know, like. Whether it really is truly ever possible to experience true, you know, like a true letting go or a true non-attachment after a grief, and I don't know. I mean, I know that theoretically that should be possible, but what I kept coming back to is like (laughs) there's this um, there's this poem that was written by this Japanese, one of the great Japanese Buddhist poets, like 200 years ago, and um, it was a man who had lost his child lost his daughter to smallpox at the age of two or three. And he writes this poem where he goes something like, I know that this world of do is a world of do like do D E W. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, so he's basically saying, I get it that this world is impermanent and that I should expect that my daughter is mortal. And then he, and then he says, but even so, but even so, and I just yeah. love that. I felt it was like such it's such a generous poem because he's basically saying, you know, I'm trained as a Buddhist. I understand all these things and I'm still going to protest. I'm not going to be okay with this grief. I'm I'm never going to be and probably neither of you. Um, you know, and it that feeling you were just talking about or the sonder of the saunter like everybody together experiencing the same thing. I think that's a deep reality and that and that one of the one of the most consoling things in the face of any grief is that we all experience it in that same way. And then I guess I'd say the second big thing that I, I, I found really helpful was um, I talk in the book about the work of, uh, of the writer, Nora McKinnerney.
0: Yes. We love yeah. her. Yeah. She's, she's one of my good friends. She's brilliant.
3: She's totally amazing. So, I mean, you know, her story and her, idea do do you feel all your listeners would know it, or should I say it, or
0: please share, yeah, yeah, but we've done an episode with her, but yes,
3: okay, okay, please so, share, so just quick recap, you know, um <laughs> so so Nora had lost her her beloved husband, um, you know, when they were still quite young, and that was a terrible grief and and then later she remarried, but she talks about how she talks about the difference between moving on and moving forward and how. Culture kind of sends us the message that you're supposed to move on, which is a fancy way of saying get over it, really. And she says, no, you know, instead you can move forward, which is to say that the grief never leaves you and your love of and your longing for that person never leaves you. And at the same time, you can move forward while carrying all of that with you and while carrying the person with you. So you're not leaving them behind, you're taking them with you. Because you are the person, like she talks about how the person she is in in this second marriage is different who she from whom she would have been without her lost husband, right? And yeah, I I I I think that framework is so liberating in a certain way.
0: Definitely, people have a hard time. They want you to move on. They want you. They want to think you you put you in a box and say you're done. You're clean. You know, it's finished. Uh, She gets a lot of comments where people will say, I mean, one of the most ones that she gets a lot that I like, she responds to is like, well, in heaven, who will be your husband? Because, you know, you can't still love Aaron if you're married again, because who will be who was your soulmate? Like, who will be your partner when you die? And she often, her response that she does is she's like, why would I be married to either of them? I will be married to John Cena. But, um, <laughs> which is so funny. But yeah, there's this idea of like, you shouldn't be, if you really loved them, you are, you can never get over them.
3: Yeah. And maybe you can and maybe you can't. But I think with the framework of moving forward, you don't have to exactly. You know, it's a right. way that you can move, in, move forward and still feel the grief for the rest of your life, maybe. Um, mm-hmm. I I don't know. You know, there's also the thing of like, I think resisting the one size fits all answer to how we're supposed to deal with these kinds of things. Because um, like the Columbia researcher, George Bonanno, has actually found that the majority of people are much more resilient in the face of grief than they think they're going to be, which I guess in some ways is not that surprising because... We have evolved as beings who have always been bereaved. Like it's part of the human experience. But on the other hand, there's some quite sizable minority of us who do experience a kind of chronic grief that doesn't go away. And so I don't know. I'm like very leery of any any system that says it should be this way or it should be that way, mm-hmm. as opposed to saying this is how it is for you, you know, because of all the complicated soup of factors that make you you and made that relationship that relationship.
2: And if you're someone who does their best to avoid negative emotions, does their best to kind of shut down when it comes to sorrow or grief or longing, and they're hearing this and they're thinking, okay, maybe I'm, I'm you know, missing out on a part of, of the human experience. And like we said before, often when you do that, that means you're not fully experiencing joy either. Mm-hmm. How do you start to tap into these emotions in a way that won't be So
3: overwhelming. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm going to give you a kind of paradoxical place to start for that person. Um, And that place is just to start by tuning into beauty in a more proactive way than most of us probably do. You know, like literally starting your morning by, by tuning into something that you find very beautiful, whether it's art or music or nature or whatever it is, because what beauty really does in us is... It unlocks our capacity to feel in a deep way, um, and there's actually this amazing study I came across that found that, like in our culture, we we really privilege the creation of art over the consumption of art. But yes, yes, we really do. But like the consumption of art is just as profound and meaningful. It unlocks the same mm-hmm. brain functions as we feel when we fall in love. You know that that's what it's doing yeah. for us. So. The state of bittersweetness, I mean, what it, it really comes about by being open to emotions as they come to us. And, I, and so beauty is one of, beauty is, is like a very non-threatening and, and actually very positive way of, of uh, teaching us to do that. So I would say that's step one. Um, and then step two might be to, to find the aspects of art and beauty that you do find to be, um, that, that, that have a kind of melancholy cast to them but that don't make you run screaming away. <laughs> that that mm-hmm. might be step two.
0: What's the name of that thing where you, when you see something really beautiful, you cry? It's like a condition. Oh. Being a wuss.
1: No! no I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: my producer's going to look it up. It's like a real thing that people have where they have like a condition where like extreme beauty makes them cry.
3: No, it's so funny that you say that because I never heard of a word for that state, but I literally have. I have two epigraphs to... my book. And one of them is all about that. It's, it's, oh yeah. It's, it's so funny that you asked that. It's, um, it's, it's an epigraph by this, um, professor of the psychology of religion. And he's talking about, um, something that Gregory the Great said, like in the year 500, he called it compunctio. I doubt that's the word you're looking for. Um, he called that the grief somebody feels when faced with that, which is most beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. The idea there is that, Kind of what we were talking about before, it's because when you see something that's that beautiful, it's like, it's a reminder of that perfect world to which we all want to return and want to belong Mm. to. It's like a reminder that we're not there right now, but that it exists out there somewhere. It's like a glimpse of the Garden Mm. of Eden. Yes. Mm. Yeah. And you're feeling it for that moment. So it's like, it's happy, sad tears because you're happy to see it and you're sad about how fleeting it is.
1: Yes. We're going to take a quick break, but stick around.
2: Just between us. And we're back. Has writing this book changed you in any profound ways?
3: Yeah, it really has. Um, I guess I'd say in two big ways. One is I tell the story in the book. It's a whole complicated story, but a sort of painful relationship that I had with my mom a very painful and complicated relationship that I had not been able to talk about without tears coming. You know, for decades, I couldn't talk about it. And I was actually really worried about writing about it and then going out on a book tour and having people ask me about it. And, and you know, despite everything I'm saying about that, we should be more comfortable with these emotions. I didn't want to be in a situation where I may be like on national radio and starting to weep. I didn't want that to happen.
4: Sure, sure. <laughs>
3: You're like, so, God, I'm a stereotype promoting the grief book, crying. You know, exactly, exactly. And so so it was like this relationship was so deeply unresolved for me. But then over the course of writing the book and really like immersing myself in everything that we've just been talking about, I really did truly reach a state Of equilibrium and a state of understanding, and yeah, like Mm -hmm. a deep emotional resolution. Wow. And I would say, you know, to anyone who has whatever your complicated relationship is or your losses, it doesn't require writing a whole book. (laughs) (laughs) You can if you want. You can if you want. You can if you want. But it's much more about tuning into this state of being and how universal it is and how normal it is. And, you know, as I said, like, stopping the resistance to it and just inhabiting it.
0: So it's actually Melissa, our producer, texted me, and it's called Stendhal syndrome. It w- used to be a psychosomatic disorder, but now they figured <laughs> out that it is a term for uh, crying in reaction to beauty. The thing that brings you to tears is called Stendhal-ish. And um, it's when you're con- you cry when you're confronted with immense beauty in the natural world. I cannot even
3: believe it because... You know, I have been researching this for like seven years and never came across that. That's so fascinating to know. So now I feel like I'm I have to weird. Look up this syndrome. You're awesome. I know a lot of trivia, <laughs> a lot of interesting things. Is what you know.
0: Thank you so much. I've been trying to get people on this show to realize that about me.
2: <laughs> no, you don't know what you've done. <laughs> <laughs> i have unleashed. So what was the second the second big change?
3: Oh gosh, the second big change is that I started out. This book. I mean, all my life I've been a really deep agnostic, and I'm still just as agnostic as I was when I started. But, but my whole relationship to questions of spirituality has just like completely changed and opened up. And the best way I can think of to describe it is uh, this parable that I came across that describes a Hasidic rabbi uh, in the 19th century who um, who had a, a man in his congregation who was obviously extremely uninterested in his talk of God and was not paying any attention. And, and, and then the rabbi sings for the man or, or hums for him a melody of longing and of yearning. And the man listens and he says, oh, like now I understand what it is you were trying to say for all these years because I feel this intense longing to be united with the Lord. Like that, that's mm. the way this man puts it. and. I feel like I'm a lot like that man. So, I'm still just as agnostic, kind of intellectually as I ever was. But what I found is that all these religions, and especially the the mystical side of most religions, you know, that they they kind of teach that the more you tune into that state of longing, the closer you come to attaining belonging. To you know, the closer you come to attaining union with the divinity. And I think you can also see that as a metaphor. You know, you could call it the divine, but you could also call it you know love or truth or beauty or everything that's most good. And so I've really gotten into that state of being and that sense of that kind of of longing as just an inherently transformative state in and of itself.
0: Hard to reach, I think sometimes they make that purposefully hard to reach. Like a lot of religion is about longing. A lot of Mm -hmm. religion is in Judaism, next year in Jerusalem. Yeah. You know, like uh, exactly gosh, we hope you know, we hope to reach the afterlife. We hope to reach, you know, it's kind of this this thing that gets misunderstood and and um, distorted and made ugly in, like, organized religion that is actually, if you, like, go back to the text, it's just about, like, trying to find peace amongst yourself and your community. Yeah. And it is about longing for something better. But that does not mean ignoring... The real needs and and uh community and love and beauty around yourselves, you know, and I think right. that that's something that gets so distorted when you translate that into di- lo- direct longing for a thing, for entry to heaven, for you know this like uh perfection where you've never sinned, or things like that, when the real longing is the is the community around you, saunder, if you will,
3: hmm. Well, I mean, one metaphor that I came across that I I felt like really helped kind of bridge the gap between this sort of state of pure longing and what you're talking about, it comes from the Kabbalah, and it's the idea that all of creation was originally a kind of intact vessel that then broke, and the world that we're living in now is the world after the breakage, but that scattered all around us still are the shards of this divine vessel. and each of us can spot, you know, different different shards lying in the mud around us. And you're going to notice different ones from the ones that I'm going to notice. And one of the things that we can do in this world is bend down and pick them up. Mm. And I really love that. I feel like it's a very helpful way to deal with the, the very difficult question of like, you know, when things are going well for you, let's say, you know, and you're more in a state of joy or or just coasting along, like, well, what do you do about the fact that this is still a world where all these tragedies are happening around you? You know, or or if you're in the state where you're in a state of trauma, what what do you do about that? And I I feel like this that parable is 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 incredibly consoling and a great guide to how to live with with these two realities and with the reality of like needing to act in this world, even as you might be longing for a different one.
1: hmm
2: yeah, I mean, that's that's the, the tricky thing about life is like there's the personal and then there's the like societal. Yeah. Um, and they can be yeah. at such odds with each other. How do you hold on to both?
3: Yeah, exactly.
2: And how do you not crumble under both? And then I think oftentimes feeling guilt of like, oh, my life, my personal life is going well, but every I see so much horror around mm-hmm. me. Or the flip
0: side where you're like, I remember someone passing away close to me recently and then me going outside and being like, look at all these people just walking around.
3: They're just walking around.
0: They don't even know. Like, it's just like this. It's just so, it feels crazy in the moment.
3: Oh yeah. Like that Autumn, Auden poem. Do you know that one by W.H. Auden, uh, Mm -hmm. Musée des Beaux-Arts. And he's basically talking about this poem, uh, this uh, painting that he's seeing in an art museum that's showing Icarus falling from the sky and that at the, at the exact moment that Icarus is landing, you know, so having his landing in the water or whatever and having his personal tragedy on and is noticing that all these other people are just walking around going about their day.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
3: And I I think that is a kind of human constant that just the weirdness of those, that juxtaposition.
2: Mm-hmm. I think what you're sort of implying is approaching it as something to be expected instead of something that needs to be fixed or that is like strange. But like, of course, we're going to feel this way. Of course, so many things are happening at once. Of course, we have the push and pull of it all.
0: Very
3: Buddhist. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Extremely Buddhist. Yeah. And being able to take it all in, you know, and and know that we're going to whether we want to or not, we're going to feel both sides. And Mm -hmm. that's what life is.
2: And I have this memory of of I I went through a a big breakup when I was like 23. And I remember being like in the car, like singing along to a song. And I was like, shouldn't I be sad? (laughs) Like, it's weird that I'm happy right now. And I was like, well, I'll probably be sad later. Let me be happy in this moment. (laughs) 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 Yeah. But so many expectations of how we should feel that don't really help us or serve us in any way.
3: Yeah, exactly. I I mean, and with grief, that's been totally documented, you know, that people Mm -hmm. will like... Laugh at a joke the the day after their beloved dies, and you know maybe weeping at their memory thirty years later. So like Mm -hmm. it never goes according to some linear plan.
0: That's what you have to remember when you watch Dateline, and you think the husband must have done it because he (laughs) laughed. Because
2: there's always this thing where they're like, (laughs) "I was
0: like, why are you going?" (laughs) Because they will always be like,
2: he's not grieving properly to grief, right? (laughs) Right. Exactly. Anyway, do you want to play a very silly game show?
3: (laughs) Sure, I'll play a silly game show.
2: (laughs) Okay, so this show is called Hypotheticals. You and Gabby are my contestants. I'm going to give you a series of hypothetical situations. Uh, You can ask any clarifying questions you might have, and then you tell me what you would do in that scenario.
4: Okay. And then
2: I just get to decide whose answer I like, if I like any answer, how I'm feeling in the moment. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Which really ricochets throughout the game. It really does. Um, okay so our first game is america's favorite game show would you stay with this cheater this is sort of plagiarized from seinfeld a lot of these are plagiarized yeah, from Seinfeld. Are, yeah but that's fine everything's fine you send your partner of 10 years out to get your favorite marble rye from the local bakery <laughs> oh my god okay the person in front of them orders the last one your partner offers to buy it off of them for a profit. <laughs> this is a very famous sign, yes, though. Yes, it is, but things are going to take I don't, a twist. I don't know this one. Oh, where he steals it from this old lady.
3: Um, wait, wait, wait. So, so the partner offers to buy it for a profit? Is that what you just said? Yes, okay. buy yeah. it for a
2: profit. And instead, the person who bought the marble rye asks them for a 20-second tongue kiss in exchange for it instead of money. Your partner does this kiss to get you the marble ride. (laughs) Would you stay with this cheater? Yeah, I would. would?
4: I would
3: too. Yeah. Totally.
0: That's a lot of effort that they put in and (laughs) they didn't have to pay extra money. And I get what I want.
3: Yeah, I totally would. I think it's all about the intention and there is no Mm -hmm. problematic intention there. And like the reason intention matters partly is because it tells you, like what the person might do the next time around. So Mm -hmm. it's not like I'm worried that he's going to be out tongue kissing everyone who passes by the next day. It's like it was all about the marble rye.
2: I hate to break it to you, but that kiss kiss unlocks something in both of them and they leave you the marble rye, but they take the rest of their belongings and move in with that stranger. Is that what happened in
3: Seinfeld? Is that what you mean?
2: No, but that could have been cool. (laughs) Now, this is in the world of hypotheticals. (laughs) (laughs) Okay,
0: so they they and that stranger fall instantly in love and leave me.
2: Right, but you get the marble rye.
0: But, like, then I have to go for the rest
2: of time and get the marble rye myself. Well, talk about bittersweet the next time you eat a marble rye. Ah!
0: (laughs) (laughs) All you can think about is your breakup.
2: (laughs) But it tastes delicious. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, uh, our next one. Are you a terrible parent? <laughs> Your child, 10, is away at sleepaway camp for the first time. Mm. You send them a letter every few days. I have to days. tell you, by
3: the way, I'm listening to this the night before both of my boys go to sleepaway camp for the first <gasps> time. Isn't that a, a funny coincidence? Yes. So who knows how I'm going to answer this one? I think I'm
2: tapped into something. I think I was going to psychic. <laughs> Or it might just be that my niece is going to sleep away for a camp for the first time tomorrow. Wow, sleep camp is starting, It starts huh? tomorrow. Oh my God. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so you send them a letter every few days, but never get any letters in return, which is worrisome because they had agreed to send you one at least once a week. When you call the camp, they assure you that your child is fine and just doesn't like to write letters. Halfway through camp, You sneak onto the campgrounds to check to make sure they are actually okay, and get caught in front of everyone, which embarrasses your kid who is actually okay and just hates writing letters. (laughs) Are you a terrible parent?
0: No, you're a good parent. I agree. Uh, How do you uh, talk? Can they not put the kid on the phone? Thank you. And even if they don't put the kid on the phone, FaceTime me. I want to see my kid and I want him to be holding today's newspaper. (laughs) (laughs) I would think that that kid is kidnapped, that they're in a cult. There's no way. There's no way. Also, I, as someone who went to summer camp for 10 years, because my parents could not wait to offload me at the age of eight, I went there for two months every year. And they, like, twice a week, they force you to write a letter to your parents, even if you don't want to. It was mail day, and you had to at least write a, a postcard that said, hi, mom and dad, I'm fine, I love you, and you had to mail it. That was You had to. The counselors made you. So this camp not doing that, red flag.
2: (laughs) I'm so thrilled that I got you that riled.
0: One thing I do know about is getting sent away to summer camp so your parents don't have to deal with you. Yeah, I think it's tapping into long ago
3: memories, for sure.
2: What do you think? Do you think it's a a terrible parent to sneak onto the camp?
3: I mean, I don't know if I'd call it a terrible parent, but I would try to do a lot of other things before I would do that. Like, I, I would look for other ways of trying to get in touch before driving. i have there. <laughs> a helicopter
0: going over that camp. Absolutely not. I can't call the police, but I will call a park ranger. You're not worried. If you, if your kid went to camp tomorrow and they didn't write you the whole summer.
3: You no, know, I mean, I might be worried, but I'd probably try to like call the camp and see if the camp could arrange a phone call or get the camp to have them write me a letter or something like that.
2: And what if the camp was like, we don't allow phone calls. That's a, a camp policy. We will tell you that your child is fine. Nope.
3: I don't know. I've got to think about that one.
2: I think you sneak onto the camp. I do too. I think you wear some some cool shorts, a big t-shirt, look like a camper. Attempt to sneak on. <laughs> <laughs> we do look quite young. But I don't think we
0: look that <laughs> I don't know. I'm going through second puberty. I could look I'm That's gonna look true. about to look like a teenage boy. I could sneak right onto that camp. That's
3: true. <laughs> and you could be a camp counselor too. Yes. Like just put the whistle was, around your neck and the baseball cap and all that stuff.
0: I was an extremely bad camp counselor. Extremely bad camp counselor. Yeah, I don't. I was a wonderful camp counselor. Yeah. Your kids are going to have a great time.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I actually feel like they will. I'm not. I'm not really worried about it. They're, they're so excited.
2: Oh, OK. Our final game. Would you forgive this liar? <laughs> you go out to lunch with your friend. On the day of a presidential election, both of you are wearing your I voted stickers and you spend a lot of the time talking about the election. No. Six months later, you run into their recent ex who, while talking about the breakup, tells you that your friend didn't actually vote. This happened to me. They just wore the sticker that came in the mail so they could seem like they voted without actually having to. Would you forgive this liar? This happened to me. Did this happen to you? No, this happened to you?
0: Yes. With who? Okay. So these two people I knew who were dating, the boyfriend in the group was posting all this stuff about voting, be important to vote, don't whatever. And then after they split up, she told me that it was a lie and that he didn't actually vote. Wait, really? Yes. Again, I'm tapping into things. This is a real thing that happened. (laughs) Susan, what would you do for this hypothetical? I mean...
3: I don't know. Like the question of forgiving, I don't really think about it in those terms so much cuz I I wouldn't really see it as a personal affront to me that would require forgiveness. It would be more that I would just like just know that about the person like, "Oh, they're actually not honest in the way that I thought that they were." Something like that. Almost like the way that you make a mental note like if you have a friend who you notice is is often trash talking your other friends mm, it's like you're make you make a mental note of like okay they're probably going to be doing that with you and that's what they do and maybe you love other things about them but but they do this one thing um so I would probably think about it in those terms
2: I would end the friendship
0: hmm. yeah I I know that about you I could see that about you I could see that about you it
2: would just be so like opposed to who I am and what I care about and I would feel so misled from that lunch.
0: What if the ex is lying? If you were trying to get revenge on someone you broke up with and you went around and told everyone they didn't vote, that's like a believable lie that then could like be really bad for them.
3: I feel like the ex doing that is even worse than the first thing. Like the ex deliberately trying to sabotage someone's, someone's well-being. That's even worse.
0: That is so funny.
2: I but yeah, I would, I would, I would stop being friends.
0: <laughs> would you go to the person and say your ex told me you didn't yeah, vote? Yeah. Oh,
2: oh, and I would say, and I would say you have one opportunity to tell me the truth.
0: You can just look. Voting is public. You can
2: just look up the, re- and see if they voted. What? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so I would go do that, and then I would stop being their friend.
0: Yes, you can look up people's voting records. Would you stop
2: being their friend? Yeah. Oh, we're very political people. <laughs> no,
3: but I didn't hear the question as like, would you stop being their friend or not? It's more like, would you forgive them in some cosmic way? I guess I feel like the the thing that they did wasn't against me. It was more like against themselves in some way. You know what I mean? They true, were just like true. being dishonest.
0: Susan's also a better
2: person yeah, than me. Yeah, it's a real I mean, you know, like, it's level yeah, like- answer, <laughs> very rational. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my goodness! Thank you so much for joining us today. Where can people find out about your books and everything that you're doing?
3: Yeah, um, so I guess the big, the best place to go is my website, which is susankane.net. and you can sign up for my newsletter and my books and course. I have these cool courses that we're developing and have developed um, that go straight to your phone, where we, I text you every morning with little audio messages and videos and things that you can look at and interact with. It's a really cool new technology. So that's one place to go. And then also social media, you know, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram. Cute. And thank you so much for having me.
2: Oh, thank, thank you, you for being so much. here. Stick around after the break.
1: We'll be talking all about how to like yourself. Gross.
2: Actions between us. It's time for Topics. X, 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 X,
0: X, X, X. Baby. Baby. Melissa's back. Melissa's joining us.
4: Am I ever not here, though? Oh,
2: you're always here. Oh, Melissa's here. But now you're on the pod. Yeah. Where we can hear you and see you. Because in case we hadn't mentioned... We're now releasing full episodes of the podcast on our YouTube channel. In video. In video. Just between us show on YouTube.
0: YouTube YouTube.com slash just between us show starting last week and now this week and all the
2: weeks going forward, you will be able to watch the podcast in full. Yes. You can see my reactions to what Gabby says that for years now have been hidden. Mostly because her reactions are always exceedingly positive. (laughs) Yeah,
0: we're fun. We're fun to watch. We're fun We're fun
4: people. It's like candy for your
0: eyes. Yeah. <laughs> also, we should say, by this time, we will have an up and running JVU TikTok. Oh, yes. We're going to be on TikTok. So on TikTok, I am at Dabby Gunn. Allison is at Allison Raskin, baby. Melissa is her name
2: backwards. <laughs> couldn't be harder to find? <laughs> because I
4: didn't want to be found at first because I joined in the early days. Oh,
2: I understand. That. Yeah. And then just between us pod,
4: wasn't
0: taken, so we are TikTok at um, Just Between Us Pod. Very exciting.
2: We're gonna be making some really groundbreaking content. Hmm. <laughs> uh, okay. So
0: let me. I want to shift this. So this topic is about liking yourself, and I want to shift this to Melissa Demontz, who I would say likes herself the most
4: out of everyone on this couch. Probably in this like fifty yard, fifty block radius.
0: Yeah. So go on. How, I like myself. How? No, but Melissa like
4: likes herself. All it's right. true. How did you come to this? Um, it's just always been a part of me. I'm not joking. No, like know, I'm being it's so serious. Like it's just always been a part of me. I think I'm great. Like really, I think I'm truly great. What are your favorite things about yourself? I think I'm hot. I'm smart. I'm very intelligent. Pretty funny. People just like to be around me for what reason I don't know. Um, but I'm a good time.
0: Yeah, you're also very driven, organized.
4: Mm. Oh,
2: okay. Um, I generous. find you to be like someone I can depend on in a yes. in a world where I don't feel like I can depend on a lot of people. I got a lot of tips to share with people. Oh my god, you have so many tips. You've yeah. changed my life in a lot of different strange ways.
4: But I also like recognize things that i would like to better myself in as well Mm -hmm. like i there's parts of both of your personalities that i like very much that i want to incorporate into my life like what so for gabby i like how outspoken you are and how passionate you are about things thanks and for allison i like how you're like sneaky silly but I guess that's actually I, I have a lot of that too, I think.
2: What is what I'm so sorry. Can you define for me what sneaky silly is? You just do <laughs> s-
4: silly stuff. Nice. <laughs> cool. You do. <laughs> I just don't expect it. Sneaky sneaky silly. And you're very compassionate.
0: Yeah. Oh, I like the way you. you
4: express yourself.
0: I was gonna say very Allison's very insightful. Mm-hmm. Oh, thank And you. then you'll say something so smart And then I'll be like why am I here
2: <laughs> No I feel that about you all the time That you say something so smart that I would never Have thought of or that could have articulated In the way you did
0: Oh well what do you know maybe we should do a show together <laughs> <laughs> I kind of love That I'm in the middle
4: I'm like kinda loving it. I like that you're this episode you're sitting forward a little bit so now I can see it. Allison I couldn't the last time. So.
0: Yeah, I'm really enjoying like this like energy where like I'm like the, the main person in the talk show or something. Uh
4: this is the view. Uh, whoopi sits on the end and (laughs) whoopi is the main person. So
2: I just wanted to say that I picked this, uh, this topic because I think there is a difference between loving yourself and liking yourself big time. Yeah. Right. Like I think that like a lot of times the first step is like learning to like love yourself. Like, you know, you have value, you're human, you should Mm -hmm. respect yourself as a person. But then like liking yourself to me is different. Because mm. it's like, oh, I genuinely enjoy myself. Yeah,
4: <laughs> I really do. Right?
2: Like, yeah. Like, I find myself so funny. <laughs> Which I know I shouldn't. That's not true. You but, should. I guess, yeah. You
0: always, as long as I've known you, you laugh at your own jokes. Yeah, I've always laughed as at, long at own As long as I've known you, you'll be like, mm, and then you'll start laughing. And then you'll let, and then you let everyone else in on it. Yeah. Or like even when you're doing hypotheticals, you'll start to read it and you'll laugh. And then you'll be like, okay, mm, sorry, I have to (laughs) I have to read these. And I'm like what a good time is Allison having on her own. Yeah. I am on a journey where I think I always seem incredibly confident. And then and then like behind the scenes, I'll be like cripplingly insecure.
2: Well, that's you've been you always. I
0: know. And now I'm feeling a little bit better. Like I think, I think The more queer I've become, the more I've been able to like be on testosterone and like move in that direction, I think has been better, especially because I thought like a lot of things were I wasn't bad at being a girl. Like I was pretty good at it. Like I was like I was like doing like hot girl shit and I was like dressing in the way that society deems acceptable. And like so I'm like, I was kind of doing a good job, but it just like was all about external validation. And I was just like, that's what I wanted. And I wasn't, I was like, this is what everyone is doing. And then it's like, no, actually, like, you don't, you, like I was like doing drag. Like I would like, Mal, Mal said one time I shaved my, before I was like transitioning, Mal said one time I shaved my legs. And then Mal said, oh, you shaved your legs. And I said, I wanted to give you the full lady experience. And Mal was like, what? you would always just be like, Oh, look, I'm being a woman. I'm being a woman. And like, it's just like this discomfort with yourself where you have to like make it into something like that, that you're like almost pretending like, yeah, I don't like this either. Like, it's just now I feel like it's like allowed me to be more relaxed. I know that sounds crazy and more like sure of of myself and not putting on a show and not like doing a drag show every second of my existence. (laughs) You know, sounds like a good change. I know. You know, it's funny. The amount of times someone will be so annoying and then I'll be like, why are they so annoying? And then they come out as trans and then they're no longer annoying. And I'm like, oh, we were all just like scared in our little hearts like we were all just like try- there's like a few instances i'm speaking specifically about jasmine kennedy who's an amazing um drag queen but like it's like this thing where it's and i was like talking about her and my uh drew and mal my my partner and my friend were like that's what you were like like you were just overcompensating because you because you just like needed to settle in yourself i but i judge myself for that a lot i'm still like why
2: are you like this <laughs> I mean, I think society makes it really hard to like yourself because you're not supposed to. You're not supposed to because you're supposed to buy all of these things to get better so that you can one day do that. But oh, wait, you need these 10 other things first. Right. And so it's like it is a really radical thing to just like who you are. And I think like what Melissa was speaking to of like it is possible to both like yourself in your current state and also strive To change parts that you Mm -hmm. want. Like those things don't need to be like mutually exclusive. Yes. Right.
4: It's always room for an upgrade.
2: So like, do you think that
0: this is just like how you were raised or something?
4: Yeah. My parents always told me I was great.
0: You know, and this is the thing. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. That's That's amazing. I mean, this is the thing. Like, and I see this with like, like younger kids, like Mal's sister is such a good mom. And the kid is like so securely attached. And then Mal and I have said to each other, like, Are are you kind of a little jealous of how this kid is growing up? <laughs> you know, because like you just it it really is so important at a very young age for parents to say, you're smart, you're worthy, you're capable, you know, all of these kinds of things that I think as we get into the age of being a parent, not me specifically, but you know, we maybe I would hope that our generation is a little bit more aware of how, of how to raise kids that way. So it's really cool and lucky that you, you had that.
4: Yeah. But I mean, like we've been saying, there's always room for improvements. And I see with my sisters, how they're raising their kids is even more so.
2: More, wow. That's awesome. Yeah. And also, you know, it, your immediate family can only do so much, right? Because also there's all the societal messaging. And so I think that like, hopefully kids growing up now, it's not just like, you know, we're not in the era of like the swan anymore or whatever. Yeah. That was like horrible TV shows where it was like you must or like extreme makeover where it's like you best get, you know, like at least I like, still
0: get that, though, from every girl having Instagram face.
2: Yeah. But I think that there is other stuff out there now, too. Yeah. Like, I think that like there is like been some sort of shift where at least there is a significant portion of the community. That like doesn't buy in, yeah, to some really harmful beliefs, yeah. And so like I I wonder like what would it have been like to have grown up never having had those beliefs in the first place, right? <laughs> Instead of like having had them and then having to unlearn them,
0: yeah. Or even, and I don't want to take away from from people getting plastic surgery or you know, it'd be I feel like I'm i think there would be people who say, oh well, if you're going on testosterone and you're transitioning, you must not like yourself. And that is, again, not true. I think that I, because I like myself, I'm doing this. Because, and so like sometimes people that, you know, they get facial feminization surgery, they get plastic surgery or whatever, for certain reasons or any reasons, I feel like it's like you're doing this because you like yourself and you want to give yourself this gift. That's what I think.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's all about balance, right? It's like, it's interesting because I had a nose job when I was like 20 or 21. I think I might have been 20, or 20, like right the summer before senior year of college. Lucky. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't regret getting the nose job at all. I like my face a lot. I think he did a great job. You know, I, I it's hard to breathe. But um, I have a sense that I wouldn't do that now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's interesting to both not regret it and also be able to recognize that that wouldn't be a choice I would make now. Yeah. And like, that's okay. Like I'm allowed to change and I'm also allowed to be okay with what I did in the past and where it took me. But like moving forward, that doesn't feel aligned with who I am today. If that makes sense. Mm
0: -hmm. Melissa, can I ask you a potentially hot button question? Okay. I think, and correct me if I'm wrong that there is even more of a societal pushback on Black women loving themselves and that there is even more of a toxic, racist overtone of, like, you know, making it even harder for someone like you and your, and your sisters to have the level of confidence that you have. Does that affect you in any way?
4: I haven't personally felt it, but I have... I have a feeling that that might be part of the reason why my parents instilled so much into us because we did like most of the time we were the only black people in schools, Right. And so I know like when when I was in kindergarten, for instance, we were living in Mississippi at the time and they went to a school and literally walked in and like we were the only black people there. And Mm -hmm. they were like, we're not going to the school.
3: So they found,
4: like, this private school for me to go to that was more diverse. And, like, even, like, people would call me, like, shy when I was little. And I'm not shy. but And I never thought I was shy. But I just, like, listen to people. Mm. Um, And so one time I said it to my mom. And she was like, what are you talking about? And I was like, well, they keep saying I'm shy. And she's like, no, you're not. Mm. Say you like to listen. Say that you're insightful. But you're not shy. Mm.
0: That's lovely. That's like, yeah, I just think that there's in terms of like, I don't know, beauty standards and stuff. That's why it always seemed that's why it's always like so there's an extra layer of radicalism to people in the media like Lizzo, like Beyonce, like, I don't know, people that are like black women who are showing like Laverne Cox, like whatever, like anyone from like a marginalized group who's like, no. Like, no, I deserve everything. Mm-hmm. And I go, Yes, yes, you do. And then the the a cis white heterosexual man could post on the same vacation and I'd be like, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> no, you you on this vacation, you suck. You take several vacations. Take take all of the vacations. You're wonderful.
4: <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's even I, one time I was talking with um, Lala Milan and I I don't even remember what the conversation that we were having was. And I had said something about just kind of like the privilege in which I had grown up in, but I was, she had asked me something. I don't remember exactly what it was, but then like, I kind of shied away from what I was saying. And she was like, no, like normalize black luxury. Like stop. That put that on a
0: goddamn mug. I can't sell it, but Melissa can. <laughs>
2: I also think it's like about you know there's always going to be like parts of yourself that you like like less or that like you wish weren't there that you know you have a more complicated relationship with I think something that's really helped me is just like focusing more on the parts I do like (laughs) right because like if you only have so much energy is it like should I try to fix this thing that like probably could get maybe 10 percent better or should I just like pour my energy and love into this part of myself that's already at 60% and I can get it to 90, you know, like nurturing those things that like, oh, I do like that. This thing about me. Let me lean more into this. Let me lean more into this instead of like building something out of nothing.
1: Yeah. Makes sense.
2: Yes, definitely. But I'm excited for you to be on a, a journey where I, I hope I hope it's less about external validation and more just about your relationship with yourself.
0: It definitely is. And I look forward to becoming like 10% less annoying each six month that passes on testosterone. By the time it's been like three years, everyone's going to be like, Gabby's so chill. (laughs) I doubt it. (laughs) Wow. How could this person have ever been like the most annoying person before this? They, I don't even buy it. They are like so Zen. (laughs)
2: Yeah, we'll mark this. Yeah, we'll mark this day. We'll play this back for you in three months and see if there's been any significant (gasps) changes. And I just
4: said, I like the passion that you have about everything.
0: I told you guys that every time we start this podcast, I go, I'm not going to get riled up today. And then I just like have an out-of-body experience where I'm like, you're riled up again.
2: (laughs) I would like to be more sneaky silly on the podcast. Yeah. (laughs) I would like to nurture that part of me more, sneaky silly. I would I knew exactly what you meant. Right? What do
3: you mean? I guess
0: that's what you're like. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I was like I know exactly what. It, you're the person who like it'll be like quiet and then like everyone will be looking in a different direction and you'll be like Psst, and you'll do something weird and mm-hmm. then I'll, and then I'll try to be like did anyone else see that? But they're all looking exactly. ahead. Exactly. And you're like how the fuck and you're like Nuh-nuh. and then you're like oh. it's like what?
2: Like that is you. I do like to wink.
0: Anyway, why don't we <laughs> rate this episode? I rate it um, 17 out of 16 references to Nora McNerney. Hello. What's up?
1: Are you,
2: are you queer yet? Let me know. I will rate it 52 out of 37 tissue boxes that say for my last day breakdown. <laughs>
4: I'll rate it 20 out of 10. Drop some simps in my DMs.
1: Ooh. Drop some simps yes. in my DMs. Drop some come simps
4: in at, my come DMs. Come for
2: Melissa. Well. Um, no, come at, come, come, <laughs> come. <laughs> gently, gently lay yourself before Melissa in, as an offering. <laughs> <laughs> Allison will decide if you are, if yes. you are worthy. I just did
4: what. want you said come for. I didn't know what would end up in my DMs. No, no. Yeah.
2: Send lovely, respectful messages of worship to Melissa. Okay.
4: Disrespect me. Disrespect me, baby.
2: <laughs> Please don't. As
0: I will uh, be upset.
2: <laughs> Thank you to Susan Kane for being our guest. Just Between Us is a Forever Dog production hosted by me,
0: Allison Raskin. And me, Gabby Dunn. Produced by Melissa Diamond-Montz. Edited by Coco Lorenz. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, Alex Ramsey, and Tracy Soren.
2: Brendan Burns composed our killer theme music. To listen to this podcast ad-free, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcast.com slash plus. And check out video clips of our podcast on YouTube at youtube.com slash team or on our channel, youtube.com slash show. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forever Dog Team to
0: keep up with all the latest Forever Dog news. Also at Allison Raskin, at SheIsNotMelissa, at Gabby Road, Emotional Support Lady Substack, patreon.com slash Dunn, and also Allison's book, Overthinking About You. Go and leave a Goodreads or an Amazon review. You can also go to Scribd and see my book, Stimulus Rack. But Allison's, give
1: them reviews. Okay, bye! Forever! Dog!